listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is a show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 291. And we're live from the Micro Seismic User Forum. What's going on, Mark? we got a whole bunch of people eating lunch staring at us. Not used to this. And It's kind of awkward. And we just went through a little issue that shows you should always be prepared and have backups. We literally launched this live podcast. We did not have an SD card. So There's no it. we in this. This is all you. Oh, it was me. Yeah. <laughs> so luckily we had to back up SD cards so we can get into this. Before we get into the show, if you want to leave a review, very simple. Just go to the show notes, click on the link. If you want to try to remember it, I don't know why you'd want to try to remember it. It's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW. Any platform, any architecture, you can leave us a review. Also, by the time you're listening to this, it'll be about a week out from NAEP. North American Prospect Expo, for the first time ever, OGGN is doing a podcast pavilion. We're inviting every other podcaster that touches energy, so not just oil and gas, geothermal, solar, wind, storage, crypto, business, whatever. So if you're listening to this and you have a podcast and you want to come record with us live at NAEP and get a press pass, reach out to me. You just have a little bit of time. And Paige? Yes. For the first time since you've been co-host here, we have a guest co-host. Yeah, I've actually had him on Oil and Gas Industry Leaders. Yeah. And so Peter Duncan, founder and CEO of MicroSeismic. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> All right. Do you want to read the review? All right. It's a five-star review. Great content. Great host. Awesome. This is the best oil and gas podcast out there. Mark and Paige provide insightful and meaningful content about the current state of the oil and gas industry in a fun and interesting way. That's not easy to do. So thank you for the review. Johnny Dallas from the United States. Yep. And if you want to leave us a review, I just told you how... Let's get into the news stories. All right. So the first one, what will be the top theme for oil and gas in 2023? Yeah. So I put this in here because there's a handful of us out here that make forward-looking predictions, which by the way, in-person audience and global audience that's listening to this, don't make any financial investments based on what we say. This is Matthew Bayes, senior global analyst at Rain, a risk intelligence company. And so one of the things that he sees that's significant risks is the economic growth in developed economies like China. Once COVID-19 outbreak starts to die down, which is already happening, and we already see that opening up of China, which is causing an increase in demand. Then Michael Smith, senior partner at McKinsey & Company, we know those people. The one thing that he's worried about for the oil and gas industry is the word and, because there's, the oil and gas industry is facing a change in reality. So I agree with both of these. I just think it's nice to give a little bit of coverage to other people that make predictions. As always, the link's in the show note if you want to read these in detail. All right. So the next one is Gulf of Mexico lease sales edge closer. About time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm actually surprised that our current administration didn't find a way to cancel this or curtail it. It was actually built into the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. They have to do these sales. It looks like Boehm's going to issue a draft supplement. Actually, they've already issued a draft supplement. And it looks like the sales are going forward. The API has asked the Biden administration to quickly move forward with these lease sales and to hurry up and finalize a five-year program. But if you remember, the last time we had leases released in the Gulf of Mexico, a court order jumped in and said, a federal judge jumped in and said that the sales weren't valid because they didn't do enough research on from an environmental impact right. point of view. Yeah. So it's good to see our current administration under the IRA sanction these lease sales. You know, we just need more of this. All right. So the next one is why fracking may start to embrace a new form of energy. 
Peter, this is right in your sweet spot. Well, thanks very much, Mark. I think for almost my entire career, I've always thought that geothermal energy is the way we should go. I prefer that over solar or anything else, except maybe oil and gas. <laughs> and why not? Because we've got the biggest nuclear reactor this side of Jupiter sitting right below our feet. So yep. why shouldn't we be harvesting all that energy? Now, there is an issue. Close to the surface, the heat's not really strong enough to generate electricity. But if you get down a couple of miles, you can get above 300 degrees Fahrenheit and you can harvest real heat. Problem is the rocks down there are impermeable. But it's not new to try fracking just as we do with shales on these impermeable rocks. Back in 1971, Los Alamos started a project at Fenton Hill up in the Jimenez Mountains of New Mexico where they fracked into the rock and tried to make a better, a bigger, higher flow rate heat exchanger. Well, there's been 15 projects since then and none of them around the world have been commercial. And part of the problem is the fracking technology they were using is old school. But the, with the downplay or the downside of the oil and gas business, the engineers who have been developing fracking over the last 20 years have got some extra bandwidth, let's put it that way. They've got some extra bandwidth and they're getting into that industry. And there's now an opportunity with, that's being demonstrated at the, what is it? It's the Frontier Observatory for Research in Oil and Gas, the Utah Forge, where they're trying modern day fracking and they're showing that the flow rates they get are probably going to be high enough. And I think we're on the verge of opening an entirely new energy source to us and the world. Yeah, you know, Peter, the other thing I really like, though, is low-temper geothermal. So you look at, like, the chicken farmers out in Georgia. It's a perfect way for them to keep their chickens warm during the winter, and it doesn't take much for low-temp geothermal. You can take almost any well and put a heat exchanger in it and, you know, get you an extra 10 or 15 degrees Fahrenheit in the chicken coop. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Which, by the way, y'all, if you're eating chicken, I can't tell what y'all are eating, but maybe your chicken was heated by geothermal. We don't know yet. What's next? Oil companies sued Los Angeles over ban on oil and gas drilling. Say that again. <laughs> oil companies sue Los Angeles over ban on oil and gas drilling. And my favorite part of this story <laughs> is that the argument is that the city of Los Angeles failed to conduct an adequate environmental impact of the cessation of drilling. So this is a lawsuit. There's actually a couple other operators also suing the state of California for the general ban. California has the strictest laws in the U.S. around drilling and its closeness to things like houses, schools, and facilities. The interesting thing about this operator at Warren Resources is they spent tons and tons of money. They only have 10 wells. All their wells are 100% electric, and they have an impeccable, when I say impeccable, not one incident has ever been reported of them. Good for them. So to me, that sounds like the operator you want operating, and Absolutely. they don't mind operating in California. I'm not sure what Los Angeles is going to do you know, other than import Russian oil, since they don't want to drill their own. But, you know, this is literally ridiculous. I do love the fact that they use environmental regulation to soothe the ban on drilling. That's classic. <laughs> it is. All right. So Total Energy's green lights, one billion oil project offshore Brazil. Yeah, those deep salt layers are coming back. This is just another indicator that the nationalized oil companies and the super majors see no end to hydrocarbons. You don't dump this amount of money in this long-term project if you think hydrocarbons are going anywhere. Even though Total changed their name to Total Energies, which is going to take me a decade to remember, you know, they're well, still... It's kind of like the Slumberjay thing. So. The SLB or... Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's partnering in Brazil is a bit of a challenge, but Total's been doing it for a very long time. They're looking to produce about another 25,000 barrels per day 
and that's going to bring a total up to 60,000 barrels per day. And then they have the tiebacks right there, which is really cool, which means the infrastructure is there for them to bring those hydrocarbons back to market. There's a lot of joint ventures in Brazil. It's kind of neat to see that those deep salt layers come back online. All right. So the next one is Davos 2023, big oil insights of climate activist protests. This really bugs me. So if you don't like the oil and gas industry, and if you think that the oil and gas industry is destroying the planet, and you want to get people together to talk about solutions, you need to invite the oil and gas industry to the table. And what's going on here is they're saying that the oil and gas industry should not be invited to the table in the World Economic Forum because the oil and gas industry is going to sway people. Well, the first thing is the World Economic Forum is around the world's economy. And there is nothing that drives the world economy more than hydrocarbons. This is the place where, Greta, I don't know if you saw in the news, Greta Thunberg supposedly got arrested. But when you see behind the scenes video, it was a political stunt. The police acted like they put handcuffs oh, on her. They so really they, didn't. Oh, they yeah. pulled an AOC. Yeah. Cool. And so BP, Chevron, Saudi Aramco were a part of the 1,500 business leaders that gathered for this annual meeting in Switzerland. You know, you have some young people. You have give Nicholas Sigret a shout out. 26-year-old organizer of the protest against the oil and gas industry joining the, the summit, he leads the Young Socialist Party in Switzerland. You know, and he's very upset that the same room the state leaders are sitting next to the oil and gas people because the oil and gas people are going to sway their interests. This is ridiculous. The <laughs> other thing is, if you're serious on the energy transition, you're talking about changing the basic world infrastructure of where we get energy from. And you're talking about very large, very complex infrastructure projects. And there's no other industry in the world that has a track record of successfully pulling off large CapEx global infrastructure projects than the oil and gas industry. So, you know, this is political fluff. This is, you know, I've been saying this for years. We need to disconnect energy from politics. We need to let scientists and business leaders help let us figure out what the future is going to bring to us in energy. And we don't need to politicize everything, which is exactly what's going on here. Yeah. All right, so Apito names 2022 Apprentice of the Year. Yeah, so this is the Global Energy Safety and Skills Organization. What's really cool is that this is a 28-year-old gymnast coach who's always wanted to get in the oil and gas industry. His name is Colin Ross. He got accepted to the Oil and Gas Technical Apprenticeship Program in 2020, and now he's in his third year as a process automation apprentice, and he's working on a FPSO, I believe, speaking of Brazil, I believe off the coast of Brazil. And so he had no experience, but the apprenticeship program brought him in. Now, remember, he was a gymnastics coach. The apprenticeship program brought him in. They tested him. They figured out what his aptitudes were, and then they trained him. And now he's out working in the field, actually working on FPSO, doing operations. This is what the world needs more of. Let's get more young people that have an interest in our industry. Let's get them training. Let's get them out there and get them working so they can see that this industry is not heavy, dirty steel, that we do some really, really cool stuff. And this organization, this apprenticeship program has been running since 2015. And then what happens is you have to get nominated typically by college tutors. And once again, you know, this guy, Colin, is, did excellent in college because of his apprenticeship program. And now he has a full-time, high-paying job, which is just prosperity for him and his family. So, you know, we need more of this type of apprenticeship programs to bring people in the industry. Okay, so Phillips 66 reaches agreement with DCP Midstream. Yeah, I think you can see a lot more mergers and acquisitions in the pipeline world. The pipeline industry sort of took a pause during COVID. And now with this world energy shortage, the pipeline industry around the world is exploding, which is always prime for mergers and acquisitions. 
And it's not just what you think of. So, you know, when I say pipeline, you typically think of moving hydrocarbons, crude oil, natural gas in a pipeline. And that's true. But as the world needs more energy, look what's going on in Europe right now. They need more liquefied natural gas. You know, they've cut themselves off from Russia. That will continue. Their natural gas supply is okay because so far the winter hasn't gotten really bad yet. Yet we need to get them more natural gas. And the way we do that is we need to build more LNG pipelines here in the U.S. to offloading terminals. And then Europe needs to build onloading terminals that will need more pipelines built to move that LNG to regasification plants so that it turns it back into gas and put it in the system. Also think of things like produced water. One of the safest ways to move produced water around is also pipelines. And then earlier today when I did a keynote, we we're talking about carbon sequestration. That's another business pipeline business moving CO2 around. And so I think this is a perfect example. You know, Philip 66 picking up DCP midstream, who's actually been around for a very long time. And it's just a smooth mood. I think this is an indicator of more mergers and acquisitions in the pipeline business here in the U.S., but I also think it's an indicator of more pipeline growth around the world. All righty. Supply chain issues is continual challenge for the industry. Yeah, we actually, Peter, yeah. you actually talked about this slightly in the keynote because I was talking about how on land, especially in the shale fields, that the growth is going to be slow. And one of the reasons it's going to be slow is things like supply chain, among other things. And what's interesting, if you get deep into this article, they're talking about how this is affecting the petrochemical industry. And supply chain is part of the oil and gas industry that needs a lot of work, no matter what part of the industry you're in. You're talking to a group of geophysicists out here, and it affects us. We buy geophones in China, for example, makes a really solid product for geophones at a good price. And we found that the lead time to get them in has gotten longer and longer. And sometimes if they were shutting down the factories, they'd just tell us we, they wouldn't be able to deliver. So it's hurting us, even down at this sharp point of the oil and gas industry. Yeah, Paige knows this. I drive a 2020 Infinity. I got a crack in my windshield. It took me 18 months. There was not another windshield in North America for my car. So then I could get a safety inspection because I didn't have a windshield. It was like, you know, it was utterly ridiculous. The other thing about this, is, I think it's very interesting, is that a survey done by ACC in August showed that 40% of corporate decision makers in our industry believe they need to overhaul their supply chain in 2023. Now, the drivers they cited were inflation, higher interest rates, and weaker global trade as the main economic drivers. I had a chance to actually, I'm not going to say the operator, I had a chance to actually visit a well site in West Texas last year, and they were going to show me their just-in-time delivery system. And so I get out there. And it's two sea cans next to the well site. And it's like, that's not just in time delivery. That's warehousing, right? So even the terms we use in this industry, we need to upgrade a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Babcock and Wilcox win contract to support Phillips 66 carbon capture project in the UK. Once again, we talked a little bit about carbon capture and sequestration in the keynote today. This is really cool. So we talked today at the keynote a little bit about direct air capture. That's a very hard thing to make economical. It works great in the lab. It's hard to make it work in the real world. But when you're pulling carbon dioxide out of a flume of a power plant or a brewery or ethanol plant or whatever, that concentration of CO2 makes it much more economically viable. And so here's a Babcock Willux, Will, Wilcox. Get it out. <laughs> I know. They just were awarded a contract by Phillips 66 to do that exact thing, to put a flu CO2 capture system in the refinery's fluid catalytic cracker in the United Kingdom. Now, what's interesting about this 
is that this technology is proven. It's been done over and over and over again. And then that CO2 can be used for other things. We had some conversations today, didn't we, about CO2 carbon capture and storage and its viability, whether direct air capture makes sense or not. But this absolutely makes sense. Absolutely. And for our Midwestern folks, the ethanol plants are the perfect source of that carbon. And that's really where we're seeing it develop first here in the, in the U.S., in the yeah. Midwest. Yeah, I do find it funny that if you look at a map of all the E85 vehicles in the U.S., they're on the east and west coast. And if you look at a map of where you can buy E85 fuels, it's all in the middle of the country. Yeah. All right. Analysis. Europe boosts Russian diesel buying ahead of ban to set rock market. Yeah, so basically, what is it, February 5th, I believe, the bans could go in effect that you're not going to be able to buy Russian diesel. Good. This article goes into details about what's going on. What they don't get into deep is, let me tell you what the workarounds is going to be, and it's already happening, is basically China is going to buy Russian crude. China is going to refine it and then sell the diesel to Europe, right? Because there's no moratorium or ban about buying Chinese diesel. So the Chinese are going to refine it. The Russians still be able to make a profit off of it. Europe will still be able to buy diesel. The problem in Europe is refining capacity. They have enough refineries to refine gasoline. But over the last 20 years, both their commercial and their residential fleet has moved over to diesel. But because of environmental regulations, they have not let the refineries retrofit. So they have tons of gasoline refining capacity, but not tons of diesel refining capacity. We actually ship diesel to Europe. We've done it for a long time. The funny thing, Paige, in the summer, when there's an oversupply of gasoline in Europe, they literally sell it to us for pennies on the dollar. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, well, actually, it doesn't make sense. But if they'd let them re retrofit the refineries, if the environmentalists would get out of the way, they could supply their own diesel needs. But this ban that's coming is just another sanction to try to keep Russia from funding its war efforts in Ukraine. All right, let's get into the last article. Wyoming proposes a phase-out of EV sales by 2035. <laughs> so this legislation is a voluntary resolution it's not enforceable but hats off to those lawmakers to actually even put that down on paper and put it out there in the public and they're being very honest about it. they go look the oil and gas industry is vital to the wyoming economy the wyoming electrical infrastructure is not ready for pure electrification vehicles so we're proposing a ban on all ev sales by 2035 and then i'm trying not to laugh folks and then <laughs> The Wyoming legislature reached out to the state of Florida, the state of Texas, and asked them to join them. So we don't know where that is yet. But, you know, that whole grid infrastructure thing is something that people don't discuss. We actually, once again, I mean, I keep repeating myself. We talked about a little bit in the keynote is that our infrastructure isn't ready for this. Wyoming is the eighth largest crude producing state in the nation. About 2% of U.S. crude output comes from Wyoming. And they're also, one, they're also the ninth largest natural gas producer. So they have plenty of hydrocarbons for their people's use and for the rest of the U.S.'s use and for the world's use. And this is legislature just basically making a political statement saying, look, don't force EVs on us. In fact, not only do not force EVs on it, we're, we want to ban on it by 2035. All right. Well, that's it. That's it. Went yep. it really quick. Yeah. That's what happens when you talk fast because <laughs> that's what you do. You know what else is really quick? What? If you want to advertise with us. You actually can go, all our pricing's online, go to OGGM.com forward slash pricing. There's a million different ways you can get in front of our global audience. So if you run a business that sells to or would like to sell to the oil and gas industry, reach out to us. We'd love to have a conversation with you. And then our Energy Continuity Conference in April, we sell exhibitor spots. The link's in the show note if you're interested in exhibiting there. Weekly rig count, where are we? All right. As of January 13th in the United States, we're at 775. We're up three. Canada is at 227, up 38. 
internationally, we're, we're down 10 at 900. Still good numbers. That yep. frozen ground is helping our Canadian brothers exactly. and sisters. Exactly. You know what else would help our Canadian brothers and sisters? Uh, sure. What? <laughs> they joined our LinkedIn page. Go on LinkedIn where we're 50,000 members strong. If you'd like to find out what OGGN is doing, that's the easiest way to do it. It takes all of two seconds. And while you're on the interwebs, go ahead and sign up. Go to either OGGN.com or OilandGasThisWeek.com. You can ask a question for our first Friday Q&A. If you ask a question and if we read it, you get a big shout out. And then if you're interested in my monthly Oil and Gas Events newsletter, we have a link in the show notes there. So depending if you're on Android or iOS, just scroll up or left and you can find everything we just talked about, including Peter's LinkedIn profile if you'd like to reach out to him and see what he's doing at MicroSeismic. Then if you like myself or Paige to do something like, I don't know, a this. live podcast at your event, <laughs> reach out to us. We'd be happy to share the details. Oh, and also, if you want to get to know more about Peter, if you go to OGGN.com and look up oil and gas industry leaders, he's episode number 90. Yeah, Peter's actually, this will be our third podcast Peter's been on. We have to, <laughs> have to put him on payroll pretty soon. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> you bet. Uh, All right. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. All right. Time for some Q&A. Anybody got any questions? Well, what's great about this is Peter calls people out. So if you don't want to be called out, you better ask a question, raise your hand first, and get it out the way. So I think a lot of people out here are pretty tuned into the news, and you have an opportunity to ask a question about recent events in the oil and gas, the energy business of an expert, of a couple of experts here, not me, the two sitting to my right. And I know somebody who follows the news and all the time, because he's always sending headlines along to me, is Mike Saunders, right there in the middle of the front table. So Mike, why don't you think about something real quick here, something that you've seen in the news recently that's piqued your interest, that you'd like to ask for Mark and Paige's opinions on. Oh, look, somebody else back there. Mike got out of it. You got a second to think, Mike. Okay, you think about it, Mike. (laughs) I hear recently that Ron DeSantis decided to clear out ESG from the, you know, I guess their portfolio of their retirement funds for Florida. What do you think about how that's going to affect us in the oil business? So, like I said earlier this morning, ESG is something we've needed, and we've touched it for years. We used to call it corporate social responsibility. Now we have a new name for it, right? And I think that government's part is something we need really strongly. You saw in the last couple of years, investors run away from non-ESG-related stuff, right? Like some very big investors. Now you've seen them start to come back in. I think the market will take care of itself, especially retirement funds, where those guys have a legal duty to make a return on their investment. And right now, quite frankly, there's not a better return on investment than the oil and gas industry. And investment dollars in, are, are seeing that. So I think we're good. Hey, thank you. Wanted to ask a question. How do you see the M&A activity? And do you see it picking up in 2023? And then also, what do you think of the recent sell by Chesapeake to wildfire energy that happened? I think it was earlier this week. Yeah, anytime somebody's reading articles when they're asking us questions, we'll get worried. <laughs> So when you say M&A activity, you talk about the industry as a whole or just the upstream side of the industry? Onshore U.S. So you can see a lot of mergers and acquisitions, I think, start in 2024. All the big players are cash heavy. ExxonMobil, Chevron, their strategy of not investing in renewables and investing in hydrocarbon projects has paid off for them. And they're naturally going to pick up the smaller guys that are struggling for pennies on the dollar. I think you may also see some more 
mergers, so not acquisitions, not, but actual mergers in some of the mid-sized players, the Devon Energies, yeah. those types, because the market's maturing. As we learn more and get more dialed in on being profitable on land, it's the normal business cycle of to have mergers and acquisitions as the market matures. So I don't think it's going to start now. I think it'll be 2024. So I listened to a podcast just last week, and the guest was Rich Powell, who works for a nuclear energy advocate think tank. And he was actually quite a bit more bullish on nuclear energy than I gathered from our conversation earlier. And he suggested that these small modular reactors were really a, going to be the way to go. And he cited examples from Saskatchewan, just as an example. And he also cited a real close collaboration between Ontario Nuclear Power and, I can't remember the organization in the southeast. It's an organization in Georgia. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts or ideas or some insights on modular reactors. Yeah. The whole world should be running on small modular nuclear reactors. It's the safest way to generate electricity. Yes, we have a waste problem with it, but we've solved that problem. We figured out how to store it safely. The recent announcement of, I got to think this through, of fusion is a bit of a press scam, right? It was done in the lab for the first time ever. They generate more energy than it took but the temperatures are insane and you have to contain it in a magnetic field. And that's just in the lab, they can do that. It's not ready, but small modular nuclear reactors, the whole world should be running on that. The problem, once again, it was PR. If you're old enough like me to remember in the seventies when Greenpeace convinced the whole world that nuclear is bad, right? And the world still believes that other than some of the Asian, you know, think of Japan, we got to get through that PR hurdle with nuclear energy. I'm a very bullish on nuclear. I think it's we've needed to go there once again, but because of the PR campaigns that Greenpeace did in the 70s and early 80s, the world's population is scared of nuclear, and they shouldn't be. Anybody else? Great talk from Mark as well as Peter. Just a quick question. Where do you see the new opportunities for businesses in the oil and gas industry, particularly small startups? That's a great one. We're actually, and I didn't pay him, we're actually launching the Oil and Gas Entrepreneurs podcast because we see the potential there. So forever, Chevron or Exxon wouldn't do business with you if you're a small company. You were a risk. And if you notice, all of them now have internal venture groups, all of them. The reason is they know what they need to compete in the future is not going to come from IBM or Microsoft or any of the big giants. It's going to come from some two-man startup in Czechoslovakia or Miami, Florida, whatever. So I think the future is super bright for small companies in the oil and gas industry, especially from a technology point of view. Anything that you can do to you know, shave another dollar off something, to drive another BTU, to we talked earlier about the lack of talent and skilled labor. Anything you do to automate stuff, it's wide open, and the industry is ready to work with small players. And when I got started in this industry in the 80s, it was the exact opposite. So I think the future is bright for entrepreneurship and small business in oil and gas. I'll throw in here a little bit, Mark, this transition or let's say the founding of major oil company venture funds is something that's happened over the last 30, 40 years. And 20 years ago or so, in groups like this, we'd have researchers standing up or academics and saying, it's a shame that these major oil companies are shutting down their research groups and what's going to happen to our business? There's going to be no new ideas coming out. But they were missing the point. The point was that these major oil companies found out that to keep a researcher on staff costs them four or $500,000 a year. I know I worked at Shell once in that area. <laughs> Whereas these young guys who would go out and found their own company, they had to be successful on a minimum amount of money to pay the mortgage. Right. And that sense of urgency 
drove innovation and there are several people out there who have felt that sense of urgency and turned it into a profitable business. Yeah, look at us. We're an oil and gas podcasting company. Can you get more small business and niche than that, right? Yeah. And 10 years ago, this wouldn't have flown, but now it's wide open. Are we taking any more questions? One more over here, more? unless someone else has a question. Yes, I wanted to go back to the issue of the nuclear waste disposal, and I know that's a question I wanted to get a feedback from Energeo, but what is, in your view, the best way to proceed with the remedial of a nuclear waste, even for these small reactors? Yeah, it's to secure underground facilities, so, you know, where they take basically mountains and they dig tunnels and caves, and they do all the geo and physics works ahead of time, and then they have the special containers. The problem isn't storing it for the thousands of years that it needs to before it decays enough that it's safe. The problem is making sure we somehow can communicate that you don't want to touch this a thousand years from now. And since we've never done it before, I think that's the issue. It's not so much, I think from a science and a physics and an engineering point of view, we know how to contain this stuff till it decays. It's how do we make sure we communicate that to future people? We can't communicate to our young people they should come work in our industry. How are we going to do that? I think that's the problem. Yeah. All right, is that it? Disposal to, to the moon surface, maybe? Or? Well, so you, you hear that a lot. Like, yes, of course you could shoot it to the sun and it would be fine. It's the cost of doing it, right? And then that if it's, what is that? I think it's, is it $100,000 a pound to get stuff out of Earth? It used to be like a million dollars a pound. Now I think it's $100,000. It just doesn't make financial sense to do that. Now, if somebody invented a cheaper way to get stuff out of our orbit, then that would be an ideal situation. When I worked at Shell in the uranium exploration department, we worried about waste. And one of the brightest geophysicists I ever knew came up with the answer one day. He ran into my office and he said, Peter, I've figured out what we do with our nuclear waste. We put it in hot dogs because nobody cares what's in a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good one. <laughs> now I'm scared to eat hot dogs. Hey, before we get out of here, I just want to give a big shout out to Gary. So Gary's been a listener forever. He's the whole reason we're here I Good job, Gary. Yeah, I appreciate our listeners, but when I get a chance to tell you one thank you in person, I love to do it. So, Gary, thank you for supporting us from literally the very beginning, and thank you for making sure that we were invited to this. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that concludes this episode, so just remember it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.